Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. I am recording. I'm recording and the TV is recording. (laughs) Mom, I'm on TV. It's live. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Catherine. Hello, Dominic Francis. How are you today? I've got a bit of a buzz on at the moment because I have been sick and not eating. And when you have one or two drinks... You get a bit of a buzz. I love that. A cheap (laughs) shot. So I feel great. (laughs) What are you drinking? Um, I'm having cucumber, gin and tonic. Lovely. That is good. It's actually healthy for you, I've decided. Yeah. (laughs) Ding, ding, ling. It's great for the tummy. Um, Kate, how are you, more importantly? I'm pretty well, considering. (laughs) I have just returned... (laughs) I've just returned from the 25th annual Victorian Teachers Games, um, which I explained in the last, I think the last episode, that it's basically schoolies, um, which is for those who are outside of Australia, is a, you know, it's your end of uh, high school party. Everybody travels somewhere and drinks and has a time. For teachers, we have our schoolies, which is the Victorian Teachers Games, and it is... Well, it can be however you decide, but with my particular group of friends, it is brutal. <laughs> so you, you sign up for sports, um, so you have to run around and do things. Uh, but then, in addition to that, there are evening events that you can sign up for. Uh, and then after that, there are venues that are reserved just for the people attending the teachers' games. So it's a huge party. Um I have been more social in the past three days than I have been all year. So it is quite the uh, recovery process. So my friend um, Jess, who came with me, she sent a text to our group this morning, uh, which summed it up. She said, why does, why does it feel like I've been body slammed into the concrete? <laughs> and that is exactly how it feels. My entire body is sore. Um, my liver will take some time to recover. But I came away with a bronze medal in trivia. I came away with a silver medal in beach volleyball, which was extremely controversial. We lost by a point. Not happy about that. But we managed to bring home the gold in AFL nines, and I kicked four goals in the final game. So I was thrilled. Kate, you're a superstar. Like, people, we're in the presence of serious teacher... Uh, goldness and and um, <laughs> fame, so stardom, may I even say? I should have brought my medals on so that I could have clinked them together because that was our um, that was our thing. When you win a medal, you have to wear it the whole time. You get a fine if you don't wear your medals. You, the only time you can take them off is in the shower or in bed. Um, so yeah, you have to wear them at all times. So we clinked around Geelong for three days, which was fantastic. Kate, can I please request that you post an Instagram story of you with all your medals on? Absolutely. I have a few of them. Good. So I can certainly do that. I, in fact, I'll post one of, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get permission, but I'll post one of my myself and my, uh, my friend Jess who I was with where we were in the alleyway of drag bingo uh, dancing and clinking our medals. So it's quite a good one. I'll, I'll check if she's comfortable with that and I'll throw that up. Otherwise, I will have photos galore. All right, folks, a bit of housekeeping before we kick off on Kate's story this week. Um, A few things. First of all, we are, which we've talked about a few times now, but I just want to ramp you all up. On the 1st of October, we are participating in a month-long special, Halloween special, where we are focusing in on the Bridgewater series and eight total podcasts are doing one mega story and Shit and Bricks is very excitedly part of that cohort 
Uh, we're not episode one. First episode will be released on the 1st of October. So please listen out for where to go to go listen to the first part of an eight-part series. You are going to be spoiled for choice, folks. I cannot tell you how amazing this month of Halloween is going to be. So listen out for that. Secondly, Kate, Patreon. We just recorded another special episode for our very select few Patreons. So if you're not a patron already, please go head out. It's in all of our links and socials and stuff like that. You can donate just even a small amount of money per month and you get all this cool bonus content. Um, It's hilarious, it's fun, and it keeps the lights on. So please go head over there to go check it out. And then lastly, Kate, we're bringing back the ever exciting BrewPod Network uh, shout out for the week. Awesome. And this week we are starting alphabetically because you know how much I love to do alphabets. Yep. It's the most indiscriminate way of <laughs> picking I people. I love to do alphabets. Hi, I'm, I'm Dominic. I love alphabets. <laughs> <laughs> it's a turn on for me. <laughs> But this week we are showcasing the Generally Spooky podcast, which is Ailey and Kieran, and they're in Scotland or based in Scotland. And the premise for their podcast is doing amazing, cool folklore and paranormal stories that's based in Scotland. So it's quite a specific niche, you know, bucket of stories. But who knew Scotland could be so fucking scary, Kate? It is. Oof. Haunted as fuck. Well, all the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> and killed. I don't know what that has to do anything, but, you know, I know things about Scotland. <laughs> so we're going to play their trailer for you in a few seconds. Please go check them out. They are also part of the Halloween Bridgewater series uh, uh, special this uh, coming October. But go check them out. They're amazing. They're really funny and they've got great accents and their stories are stuff that you normally would not hear. So here is the trailer for Generally Spooky Podcast. Boop, boop, boop. Boop, boop, boop. (laughs) Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky podcast is for you. My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. I'm chief listener, provider of jokes and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. Oh, Kate, aren't they amazing and sweet? They are the cutest, cutest little buttons. (laughs) It's very cool. It's nice to have people back. Right. It's nice to promote others, and they are so lovely. They promote us all the time, so it's only fair that we do it back. But... Kate, I know you're in recovery mode. Yes, I am. If I lose my voice throughout this, don't be shocked, but I will do my very best. It's hot, Kate. I love it when you're croaky. Oh, thank you. Uh, But you're the narrator for this week's episode, so what are we talking about? Well, if you've clicked on this, you may be aware that this episode this week is called Claustrophobia Number 1. Now, <laughs> as I was going through and writing this story for today, I found one example and it is a very well-known story uh, and you may have heard it before and that's okay because it's good for us to, you know, go over these things and be frightened and I hadn't gone into as much detail with this story myself so I enjoyed writing it uh, and hopefully you enjoy listening to it but we are focusing on the story of uh, John Jones who was had an unfortunate incident in the Nutty Putty Cave Uh, (laughs) so you might have you know heard of the Nutty Putty Cave before Um, I kind of love the name Nutty Putty (laughs) Yeah, same. My Nutty Putty Cave was in distress last weekend, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Oh, guys, here's a hot tip for you. Don't order the Greek feast at the Burvale Hotel. In fact, (laughs) 
don't order a Greek feast anywhere but a Greek restaurant is my opinion. I, I, I would guess fair. after that. But all shitting myself stories aside, uh, this story, it's, yeah, I, I discuss how, uh, you know, <laughs> being awake in a coma, <laughs> being, being, you know, aware um, was probably my worst fear. This is really close as a second. This whole story is super duper close as a second worst case scenario for me. So I'm going to dive into it. Um, but please, Dom, I encourage you to jump in with any little <laughs> tidbits, jokes, whatever you like to lighten it up. I've taken an article from uh, Lindsay Whitehurst, who wrote this this article for the Salt Lake Tribune, originally published in 2018, updated in 2019. There are two parts to this story, so I've taken you know most of what I've written here from that, but I have edited a little bit because I was saying to Dom before we started recording, it is an incredible article and it is very uh, personal. So there's a, you know, in the sense that there are a lot of, um, you know, anecdotal stories about the people involved and the people around um, uh, John Jones that was, it was actually quite emotional Mm. uh, when I was reading it. I really felt for the people uh, in, in the story. So I did take a little bit of that out of it, uh, just so that I could get through this without crying, to be honest. So if you do want to go ahead and read it, we can post the link for the, the original articles, part one and part two. Um, but yeah, this will tell you the story in an incredible way. So shout out to Lindsay Whitehurst. Thank you for sharing this on the Salt Lake Tribune. (laughs) Okay. Can I interject real quick? Is it, is it, it's kind of like, you know how you did an episode on old mate 127 hours and yes you know it, it's not quite claustrophobia it was more of a survival story but you know it's no secret that my compassion for this fella in 127 hours i've forgotten his name because i've blocked it from my memory (laughs) yeah but my level of compassion for him was pretty low because of some of the stupid decisions that he made Mm -hmm. um both before during and after but it's almost like this story which i'd never heard before i've never heard i've never heard of nutty putty cave i am quite a caving enthusiast Mm -hmm. um Never heard of John Edwards Jones or John Edwards. John Jones, yeah. Um, but it's it's almost like so. I had no compassion for compassion for old mate one one hundred twenty seven hours. This is the complete opposite. Complete opposite. It's so, so oh yeah. It's it's, a it's bit horrendous. It is. So yeah, as I said, if you do want to have a look and yeah, have a little bit of a, a tear in the eye, certainly go and read the original article. But yes, I've edited a bit just to try and keep with our tone a little bit more as well, because I would find it hard pressed to be cracking some serious jokes um, with this particular story. So we, you know, if I, if I take a bit of that out of that, it's not going to seem so completely fucking heartless that we're like, when, you I know, mean, even with the name of anyway. Nutty Putty, like it's yeah. like the jokes right themselves. <laughs> well, that's it. Exactly. So we'll see how we go through this, but uh, it's it's quite the story. So I'm going to dive in, so to speak. <laughs> Starting off on a really strong note. Woo! Crawling on her belly, Susie Mortolas inched her way through a cramped limestone tunnel that wound through the earth like the path of a worm. The search and rescue team volunteer sweated in 70 degree heat, stifling humidity, her clothes covered in a soft brown clay. This unmapped passage of Utah County's Nutty Putty Cave was no wider than the opening of a washing machine. (sighs) So first and foremost, that's horrendous. And Susie had ropes tied around her ankles so other rescuers could pull her out if she got stuck. 20 minutes passed before the beam of her headlamp fell upon a pair of navy and black running shoes sticking out of a narrow crevice at the tunnel's end. Hi, John. My name's Susie. How's it going? The reply seemed to come from the other end of a long hallway. Hi, Susie. Thanks for coming, but I really, really want to get out, said 26-year-old John Jones. He was trapped nearly upside down. I know, same. Hi, thanks for coming. (laughs) By the way. Hi, (laughs) Susie. Oh, I'd love to get out of here if you wouldn't mind. Would you mind? Can't go round. Um, got oh, a great shot of my ass. Please get John me out of here. Is 
he's in there and he's trapped. He's almost upside down. His six foot, 200 pound body seemingly swallowed by the rock. So John is not a small guy. Six feet tall, 200 pounds. What's pounds to, that's like nearly 100 kilo, right? I'll find out for you. I think it's like almost, almost half, like 110, 120 kilo perhaps. Uh, but he's basically being swallowed by this rock. So all that you can see are his shoes, essentially. 90 kilos, perfect. So he's 90 kilos, six foot tall, uh, and he's being swallowed by a rock. Uh, <laughs> above John, Susie's slight five foot three inch frame was also encased. She couldn't fully extend her arms and legs, but she was confident. Amongst the smallest of the dedicated band of search and rescue volunteers in rugged Utah County, Susie couldn't carry the biggest packs and she got cold faster, but she was a caver and a good one at that. She knew Nutty Putty and she couldn't go where she could go where others could not. She, Susie, had been moving into a new house, but she dropped everything when her rescue pager went off just after 9 p.m. She drove her Toyota 4Runner, purchased with the eye towards rescues around the southern end of Utah Lake and down the long, dark dirt road leading to the cave. Susie met with two other rescuers and descended into the cave through a rocky hole at the top of a large hill in the West Desert. They traversed its chambers for about 30 minutes before reaching the 135-foot tunnel where John was stuck. So imagine doing anything for 30 minutes. Um, That's one-third of the film Awake, which you forced me to watch today. (laughs) And that was painful enough. But 30 minutes of crawling through a hole the size of a washing machine does not... That's not a fun activity for me, and I would not like to be invited to do that, just as a heads up. If anyone was thinking of inviting me, I can't come that day. I'm busy. You have to think of oxygen. You have to think of heat. You have to think of the staleness of it all, the silence of it all, right? It's just, uh, yeah, it's horrendous. But Susie went in first and she reached John at 12.30 a.m. Okay, so keep that time in mind because Susie's going down there to say g'day, John. After, you know, quite some time has passed, she got the beeper call at 9 p.m. So this is, you know, three and a half hours since she got the beeper call. She's a rescuer, so he has to have been in there before as well. Mm. Now, he had been stuck for more than three hours. He had one arm bent underneath his chest and the other was forced backwards. So he doesn't have his hands, arms in front of him. One of them's beside him and one's underneath his chest. So his calves were free, but they were useless. So that's it. Just his calves. Mm. So John said, hey, Suze, thanks so much for popping by. Uh, and she <laughs> responds, she says, no worries, John. You're going to be out of here lickety split. But as she tied a webbed rope into a lover's knot around his ankle, she realized that bringing John out of the cave was going to be like swimming backwards against a very strong current. Caver Dale Green discovered Nutty Putty in 1960, and he named it after the clay that he found in much of its 1,400 feet of chutes and tunnels. Imagine being the first one to discover this. And in 1960, the equipment's probably a bit different. Like, yeah. why? Just the people are wired differently. This we are we are fully aware of after 47 episodes of this. <laughs> people are wired differently to see a cave and go, "I'm going to go in there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to pop in there and have a wiggle around." I think it's that ex- explorer sort of mentality of yeah. No one's ever done this. Climbing Mount Everest, swimming across something or going to the North Pole or South Pole or whatever. And the fact that people did it with such archaic material and equipment. But they it's not so much that that was the challenge. It was also the fact that no one had ever done this before. And you're like, God, you got to be ballsy as fuck oh yeah not it sorry i shouldn't say that you gotta have guts to be able to do that for sure and i don't know of many stories of that any longer like there's when's the last time a human has done something that's like not been done before yeah it's it's getting harder it's yeah, like people can do it quicker and faster and blah blah, blah whatever whatever but that could be why space is like that thing because yeah. it's so hard. They're like, space is the vibe. Let's let's try and crack that. Because a lot of the stuff on Earth has kind of been done. So yeah. let's try space or the, or the deep, deep ocean. 
Um, now, back at the Nutty Putty, thousands of people, they've explored this cave and it was once so popular that a line would actually form at the entrance. So people would line up to get into this place. So it's not like it's uncharted territory. There's, you know, uh, people are aware of this tunnel. They know what it's like. They know the chambers, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now, John went into the cave on November 24th, 2009 with 10 other friends and family members. Very good step. This is the complete opposite to 127 Hours Cowboy who decides to go by himself. John's gone with 10 other friends. Now, this excursion was organised by his brother, Josh. It was their first time in Nutty Putty and it was a throwback to childhood family caving outings. So they have been caving as a family before. So it's not like this is brand new. Um, John hadn't gone into a cave for years, uh, but the two brothers met for, for Thanksgiving at their you know parents' house, which was nearby. Uh, John was by then attending medical, uh, medical school in Virginia and he lived with his wife Emily and their one-year-old daughter Lizzie. Their second child was due in June. The group entered the cave around 8 p.m. Now when I read that I was like why are we doing activities at 8 p.m. but then I realized it's super dark in a cave so it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really, really matter, matter <laughs> what time's like oh we're gonna get there when it's dark yeah have you been inside? <laughs> Not much different. <laughs> So they entered at 8 p.m. and they explored a large chamber called the Big Slide. Fun. Love it. Uh, before John and Josh broke off with two other friends to find a challenge, a tight but navigable passage called the Birth Canal. Mm-hmm. They split up, wriggling into alcoves and passages to look for it. Okay, so they're looking for this specific canal, call it, or this section called the Birth Canal. Now, John picked a waist-high hole to explore. Uh, so he's like, where, where am I going? This looks good. In I pop. <laughs> Off he goes. He was wearing a rainbow colored 1970s style caving headlamp that his dad bought for him for the family trips when he was a kid. He went in head first, pushing himself along with his hips and his stomach and his fingers. <sighs> They've got, I've got problems with all of that, but you know, whatever. John's in there. He's caving. Other cavers exploring this hole had found that only the nimblest of contortionists could navigate its tight corkscrew of rock. John found no place big enough to turn his body around and leave the tunnel. So six foot, 200 pounds, yeah. 90 kilos. This is already, you know, concerning, I would say. Yeah, my stomach literally just turned in <sighs> knots yeah. as you described that scenario and I've yeah. done a lot of caving Kate so I'm okay. familiar with I'm, fam I'm genuinely being transported back to some of those scenarios where an instructor or whatever is like leading you and going don't don't trust your eyes right now know the fact that this is doable and your body is able to contort in this way so, I don't like that. But Why I know you... that feeling. Oh, Dom. <laughs> I can't. Oh, So in addition to um, being an Alphabet fan, you're also a Spelunker? Yeah. Brilliant. Love Not it. Resume. It's no. really just developing. I, I've I'm got so a story to tell you. you at the end of this episode, which will, will just fucking shit your pants. But Perfect. Bring it on. Second time this week. Okay, so um, <laughs> now John kept going. So he, he, he thought he was in the birth canal section which was mapped and that's something that people had gone into before um now when he saw a a fisher 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 okay fisher um it dropped nearly straight down in front of him uh it may have appeared wider at the bottom which would have given him a spot to turn around yeah uh rescuers believe that john sucked in his chest to navigate and investigate that fissure, sliding his torso over the lip of the rock and down into the 10-inch wide side of the crevice. But when his chest expanded again, he was stuck. Yeah. Struggling to free himself only made John slide deeper into the narrower 8.5-inch wide side of the fissure. Yeah. So, you know, that 2 inches counts, that 1.5 inches, like, you can only... Imagine, like I'm thinking of a Subway sandwich now. That's 12 inches. <laughs> it's a foot long. That is not enough for me to put my body into. I mean, I'll put it in my body, but I won't put my body into a space that big. Like that's bonkers. Yeah. Um, 
Now one arm's pinned underneath him and the other forced backward by an outcropping of rock. So he's kind of slid down and his arm's kind of caught. So it's pushed beside him and the other one's underneath him. His rainbow headlamp bounced off. Instead of widening so John could get out, the crack narrowed and all but closed. Could you imagine that? You get stuck and then your headlamp falls off and thinking it might fall into a section where you're like, oh, sweet, I can just pop, try and slide down there further and then turn around. There's nothing there. It just basically closes. And you're like, oh, drats. I think I've made a boo-boo here. This is as far as I can go. This is it. This is it. Now, when 23-year-old Josh uh, learned that his brother was stuck, he thought it was the beginning of another family adventure story. Their father had once gotten briefly stuck between two rocks when they were kids, and that became like a family story for them. So they were like, oh, silly John. We're going to be able to talk about this later. Um, now, Look, as... props, props to not panicking. Like, no. in all honesty, because the worst thing, the thing that I've always been taught when I've gone caving, and, and granted it's been a few years, so I don't know, maybe there's been um, breakthroughs in the world of caving, but I don't think there is, because this is a basic rule, is just panicking is the worst thing that you could possibly do. Raising Absolutely. your heart rate... All those sorts of things. Yeah, increasing how much you're breathing, like everything like that. It's just, yeah, it's the worst. Now, Josh has wound through the tunnel. He was crab crawling feet first between the cramped muddy walls. So he's kind of going in backwards, I guess. Um, But as he's going in there, he was feeling a bit of a apprehension. And then he reached the corkscrew and he got stuck himself. Um, But then he could see his brother and then dread settled in. Uh, seeing his feet and seeing how swallowed he was by the rock, that's when I knew it was serious, Josh said. It was really serious. Uh, Josh managed to work his way free, thankfully. He wrapped his feet around John's calves and he pulled, so he's trying his best to, you know, do whatever he can. Now, John's body did inch up, uh, but because he's got nothing to hold on to and his arms aren't free, he slipped back into the crevice as soon as Josh released him. Yeah. So he would come up a little bit and then slip back in. Uh, as Josh released him, which that would probably be worse. I don't know. Uh, like just moving up a little bit, sort of feeling that that sense of relief and then straight away going back in. Um, yeah. So now caving made Josh feel like an explorer, finding something truly new in alien depths, like you were saying. It's that explorer mentality. But now he felt powerless and overwhelmed. His other, His older brother was helpless in a dark hole. He knew that they needed a search and rescue team. So Josh crawled his way back up to the surface and he called 911 um, whilst a friend went into the tunnel to stay with John. Now, keep in mind, it takes like 20, 30 minutes to get to where John is. So that's not like a quick, I'll just pop outside, call the rescue team, get them back in here. It's it's like it's a hassle to get out and get back in again. So, you know, if we're talking that Josh has gone out, John is upside down. He's head first in this tunnel and it's another half hour for someone else to come back down. So, you know, you're talking 45 minutes of being upside down. If I bend over and get up too quick, I'm in a world of trouble. But this is someone who is like everybody has at one point been upside down in their life. Like, you know, you can't do it for very long. You get the head spins for the body. No, everything rushes into your head. It doesn't feel good. So, you know, keep keep that in mind as we're sort of going on and talking about Poor John here. Um, now, knowing that help was on the way, it steeled Josh for another trip down the tunnel to take his friend's place. The brothers made small talk to ta- take their minds out of the cave. They talked about Josh's girlfriend um, and whether he should follow John into medical school. After almost an hour, Josh heard rescuers were at the cave's entrance and he went to find them. I didn't want to leave him, he said. He was His whole life was in that cave, in that tiny little crack. But John told his brother it was okay to leave. He said, go get him, brother. And then Josh went up to go and get the rescuers. I have to give massive props. So far, mm. people keeping their head cool. And I know we're, t- we're talking about a retelling of a story. But even Suze and John and the lightheartedness. Like, I bet your bottom dollar, Kate, like some of the times that I've been in shitty or high-stress environments, I always crack a joke to just lighten the mood. I don't know why I'm just Definitely. that person, but I have the power of, and it's why we do this podcast, Kate, the power of just 
trying to lift the spirits and what that can do for your, you know, the your psychology of yeah, definitely can make a huge now, difference. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, it's like you know we say. I mean, I say in life all the time, but particularly when you're with a group of teachers, uh, as you often say, you have to laugh or you'd cry. Yeah. There's so many things you come across that, you know, you just have to laugh about it because otherwise you'd find yourself really, you know, quite quite upset. So I think it's that sort of situation. Um, now, the original article, I just want to mention, they they do go into a lot about um, John and Josh and his family, uh, part of the Mormon church, and faith is a very important part of their life. And that was a big part of um, this whole rescue process as well. Now I didn't take it out because I didn't want to talk about it. I just took it out for the sake of keeping the story, uh, you know, under two hours because yeah. there's quite a lot in there. So again, that is a really part of it. A really big part of it is his faith and that connection he does make with rescuers and other people there as well. But his family, um, yeah, that, you know, a lot of singing hymns, a lot of praying. It was a big part of this rescue as well. So Again, I didn't take it out because I didn't want to sort of talk about it, but I thought I'd mention it. And when you go back to read the article, there's a lot of detail about that, about what they were singing and talking about as well. Now, the human body is designed to walk upright. There you go. Facts. <laughs> Don't say know. I didn't teach you anything. <laughs> <laughs> the heart, it works with the force of gravity, not against it. So if you're upside down, the heart is going to struggle because it's it can't it doesn't work that way. You should be upright. Um, now, when rescuers told a trauma physician, his name was Doug Murdoch, that John was nearly upside down, he knew that the trap man didn't have much time. Being upside down, your body has to plump, plump. <laughs> your body needs to be plump. Uh, no, your body has to pump the blood out of the brain all the time. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Murdoch. Uh, he said your body isn't set up to do that. The entire system will start to fail. Um, so Dr. Murdoch heads to the scene knowing that blood and fluids would be pooling in John's brain and lungs. His circulation would be slowing, capillaries leaking, toxins building up in his blood. If the rescuers were to free John, those toxins can rush to his heart and kill him. Yeah. So we're now in a different set of circumstances. Not only is he stuck in there, but the position he's in is making it really dangerous to then pull him out quickly. And then if they chucked him upright, that would be uh, fatal, could potentially be fatal. Now, there are very few studies about the long-term effects of being upside down, but Murdoch thought that John might have eight to 10 hours to live. So he's, you know, by this point, he's already been in there for four, let's say. Like mm. it's certainly been three. It could be even longer, four or five hours. Um, now, Suze, bless you. Susie knew what it was like to be alone in the darkness at Nutty Putty Cave. She, in fact, had been stuck once when she curled into a ball to turn around and she found that she was not able to move her legs. She couldn't hear her group. She started to panic and then she started to tell herself, you need to breathe. Millimeter by millimeter, she pushed her legs out behind her until she was free. Inside the tunnel, Susie tried everything she could think of to free John. She helped string a rope from uh, from John back to the rest of the team in the open pit at the tunnel's entrance. The team pulled, but they didn't have enough power to move John. And the friction of the rope rubbing on the stone was too strong. Susie helped him to shift positions, but she couldn't lift him. She stretched a water bottle down uh, to his right arm, the one that was forced backwards uh, so that he could try and tip the bottle forward. The water flowed down his arm in the hopes that some would eventually get to his mouth so he could try and you know drink a little bit now we're gonna I'll, I'll explain a little bit more uh as we get into the the rescue portion of it as i start to ramp up the rescue efforts but we will post some pictures in our socials because there's a really great image of what this looks like so it's not just you know a cave that kind of goes straight down there's not just a straight plateau and then john's stuck in you know the the part that goes down it kind of is like the way that I looked at it, it's a little bit like if the stock market's going really well for a bit, it kind of <laughs> peaks into, <laughs> but then there's a big fucking crash and the stock market plummets. That's it kind of looks like a graph. So it's got, yeah, like a, an apex and then it goes down a little bit more and then there's the sharp incline. So there's a bit to, to deal with. It's not just a straight line that yeah. they can run a rope pulley system. There's a lot of different aspects of this cave to try and contend with. So it's not as, it's not an easy rescue um, mm. at the best of times 
Now, Susie also tried to cut off uh, John's jeans to try and free up a few inches. And then she joked that she'd have to tell this story to his wife and asked if he'd like to get some pancakes when they got out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Susie's trying to keep it light. She's cutting off his jeans and going, oh, you should buy me dinner first. <laughs> oh, should we get some pancakes? Like, I, I really love that. She's trying to keep his spirits up and trying to do absolutely everything that she can. Like, she's just a, yeah, she's a credit to this whole yeah rescue effort now as john uh spoke his voice grew more nasal um and his breathing was a lot more labored so she could hear that his lungs were filling with fluid so as he's talking it's starting to sound a bit you know time slips by strangely underground and susie only had a vague notion of its passing uh only her headlamp uh, lit the cave's absolute darkness the only sounds were those that the rescuers made After about two hours, Susie had tried everything she knew and she crawled back out for another rest. Um, And then uh, another rescuer popped down and took her place. In the meantime, she needs to rest too, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you think about it too, like everything that she's trying, so, you know, even the simple act of handing him a drink bottle, like she's got to, yeah, get that drink bottle. You're fighting the whole time. Like you're having to wriggle to move little incremental things to try to get all of these bits of, I can only imagine how long it would have taken for her to try to cut his jeans off, for example. Like, this is not an easy working environment. There's no. some challenges here. So, yeah. yeah, she's gone up to have a rest. It's like a stuck person trying to help a stuck person. You need exactly to right. stick, you got to get a few people stuck in order to help one stuck person. Like, Yep. Exactly. Um, now, in the meantime, so the team, so there's another rescue gone down to sit with him. Uh, the team are working to solve the friction problem by rigging a pulley system anchored to the tunnel's walls um, with a series of climbing cams. Uh, so those anchors designed to fit into the rocks that you use for rock climbing and all of that sort of stuff. So they're trying to angle the rope on the way down so that it's not rubbing against other rocks so that it, you know, snaps or anything like that they had to push the cams through a thick layer of powdery calcite that coated the cave walls then string the rope through the attached pulley after new each new cam they would try the system again if the friction was still too great they would add another pulley every single step of this was painfully slow each trip into the tunnel to pass a piece of gear took nearly an hour so they are getting one cam down there trying to fix it into the wall again we're talking about people lying in all sorts of ways areas places having to get into the wall attach a cam try the pulley didn't work do it again like it takes nearly an hour to do all of this this is it 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 just puts into you know context how how serious this is but also just how unbelievable the that these rescuers are to just keep trying they're just like it doesn't matter let's just keep trying Um, as the hours passed, rescuers arrived from all over Utah. The Utah County Sheriff's Office set up a command center and rescue leaders ran the, through idea after idea. Was there a back ent- entrance to the tunnel? No, it ended shortly after the crack where John was stuck. What about the rescuers who worked on the, the Grandall Canyon explosion that trapped six miners in 2006? They didn't have much advice. Rescuers ordered six gallons of vegetable oil to try and slide John out. And they even considered explosive explosives, but yeah. they worked out it's not going to work. Like you can't just pour gallons of vegetable oil onto someone who is upside down. Their nose has no protection. Their mouth, like if they could basically, they could drown him. Like if that was the way that they had intended on doing it. Yeah. Um, drills and chisels arrived throughout the day, but larger equipment was too big to position anywhere near John. The smaller equipment was too slow. And when they tried to widen the rocky corkscrew to prepare for John's exit, it took nearly an hour and a half to drill through six inches of rock. Mm. So this is a time-sensitive rescue and everything is taking hours. And John is upside down this entire time. Now, John's wife spent, uh, her name's Emily, she spent the night of November 24th waiting by the phone expecting news that John was free. She had always known her husband of three and a half years to be persistent and patient. Uh, she, you know, knew that she loved John as a 20 year old Brigham young, Brigham young university student, but marriage in her words, uh, looked like a lot of work and not that much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Now she said that with a smile, she took the ring, but then she gave it back and he waited two months until she was sure. 
they got married and when she became pregnant, it was John's idea to attend medical school at University of Virginia so that she could be close to her family. So it's what is the most heartbreaking is that these people just, are, they're just beautiful. They're, they're beautiful people and they have a young family and it's just, it's, yeah, that's why I had to take a fair bit of the personal side of it out because it just was heart-wrenching. Um, yeah, it's not like um, his name's Aaron, Aaron yeah. Walston from 127 Hours. Which oh, that's right. Obviously, I don't want to diminish, but it pissed me off so many elements of that story where it was a stupid person doing stupid things and making mistakes, whereas, you know, this family and, and John making just an honest mistake and being with people and doing everything right and just Mm -hmm. you couldn't think of a nicer person yeah exactly um now when the morning came on november 25th 2009 emily couldn't wait anymore she took lizzie their daughter and drove to the cave with john's parents there she found a hive of more than a hundred people talking planning and waiting uh amongst the ambulances fire trucks and police suvs a tall, broad-shouldered man in his 50s with buzzed hair and a bristlebrush moustache introduced himself as one of the on-scene commanders. We'll get John out. We'll get him out for you, Utah County Sheriff's Lieutenant Tom Hodgson said. He was tearing up, Emily remembered, which confused her. Hodgson knew what the cave could do. He was there, for, he was there six years ago when a 16-year-old boy got stuck in the same tunnel that trapped John. It took the crew uh-huh. 14 hours to free him and the teen spent days in three days in a hospital afterwards when a second person got stuck at nutty putty less than a week later state officials closed the cave the cave had only been open for six months when john got stuck so poor tom hodgson lieutenant tom hodgson he had seen how crazy difficult it was to rescue Mm. people so he's trying to be positive and saying we're going to get him out to the wife you know with their young family And yeah, she was confused as to why he was upset by saying that. Um, Yeah, but he had, he'd seen it all before twice. Now a pulley system um, did free the five foot, seven inch tall, 140 pound teen in 2004, but John was bigger further down the tunnel and rescuers could only reach about six inches of his legs. So this system that they're trying to work on did work. But that's for someone who was, you know, three inches shorter, 60 pounds lighter. Now, back in the cave, each new pulley helped inch John out of his dark prison. The team pulled, they pulled again, but John's feet hit the tunnel's low ceiling. And with his heart struggling to pump blood into his legs, the contact made him scream in pain. So the rescuers came to a horrible realisation that the angle of the tunnel meant they couldn't bend John's body backwards without likely breaking his legs. In his weakened state, the shock could kill him, and the cams anchoring the pulleys were slipping from their uncertain places in the wink calcite. So the way that, yeah, John is positioned, he's gone down tummy first into this crevice, but because the yeah, roof of the tunnel is so low of the, you know, above where he was, to pull him up, there's not enough space to then get his legs to bend backwards mm. to kind of yeah bring bring him up safely because he can't he can't push rotate. he yeah. yeah you have to rotate to get him to come up back first and his tummy first so it's they're just there's they're literally coming up against every problem possible okay now Ryan Shirts usually feels at home underground since he was four he spent most of his free time exploring caves. Uh, and more than once acted as a trapped victim for Utah Cave Rescue, a group that his father had helped found. He was six foot one, uh, and yet he was super thin, he was flexible, and he was seemingly immune to claustrophobia. But when he reached the narrow crevice trapping 26-year-old John Jones in the cave, he had to fight back tears. The simple geometry looked impossible. The crevice was at the end of a cramped tunnel and rescuers realised hours earlier that trying to get him out is going to, you know, properly break his legs. And John had been trapped upside down for almost 12 hours at this point. With fluids pooling dangerously in his head and lungs, the shock of the injury could kill him. Now, Ryan, new rescuer, who's been doing this for for quite some time and founded a cave rescue, uh, you know, um, group, 
as scary uh, and uh, depressing as he, as Ryan felt for John's predicament, he had a job to do. So shortly after he arrived, the rescue crews got a set of heavy-duty air chisels and drills that they would use to rebuild the pulley system designed to get John out of there. Yeah. They initially created the pulley system using... Uh, climbing cams, but the anchors couldn't get a strong di- uh, grip. So um, they were trying to yeah find something else that they could use. Now, Ryan would stay with John during, the, during this reconstruction effort. When the new system drilled into the rock was finished, the team would, uh, you know, inch John up. Ryan would then try to shift John from the eight and a half inch wide side of the crevice where he was stuck, moving him to the slightly wider side of the fissure. So this is, you know, an yep. attempt to try not to, to break the poor guy's legs. Next, the crew would pull as hard as they could. They had medicine ready to give John intravenously immediately after they freed him. Um, the plan was that, you know, John was, that they're going to try and get him out, give him the intravenous drugs, and it was their last best hope. Yeah. Um, John was starting to lose touch with reality. So a lot of what he was saying at this point was he'd be sort of lucid at one moment and then the next minute he's talking about stuff that made no sense to Ryan whatsoever, who's down in the cave with him. Now, um, when Ryan reached John, he loosened knots that earlier rescuers had tied around his legs. He bought a water pouch filled with Gatorade and he stretched the attached tube down so that John could drink. He rubbed John's legs to remind him that he wasn't alone in there. John said to Ryan, I'm sorry I'm so fat. It would be so much easier for you guys to get me out of here if I wasn't so fat. (laughs) Ryan smiled and said, we'll get you out of here, buddy. And, uh, you know, when we get you out of here, I'll be your workout buddy. How does that sound? (laughs) So no body shaming, not even. I know, not even in this. He's like, that's right, dude. You know, I'll I'll go running with you once we get you out. Um, Now Ryan said that John was oscillating between calm, coherent conversation, and then all of a sudden he'd just start thrashing his legs in sheer panic. So he's not having a good time, as you can only imagine. Yeah. The best way to bring uh, John back from the you know thrashing about Ryan discovered was to talk about his family. So John told Ryan about his family, uh, his wife, Emily, and about their life together in Virginia and about their one-year-old daughter and the child on the way. The baby was actually due on Ryan's birthday, which was June 13th. So Ryan was talking to John about that. Now, rescue commanders on the surface uh, also knew how much of, um, you know, talking about his family and stuff like that was going to be helpful to him. So the Salt Lake County crews actually brought in like a, a... telecom like a set of radios and a line of cable so they got that down into the cave um, and they gave the speaker to Ryan lying in the dark tunnel Ryan stretched his long arm out as far as he could with a little black box tears streamed down the rescuer's face as Emily shouted to John from the chaotic surface to the musty cramped tunnel I love you just keep fighting Emily's voice crackled through the box John yelled and Ryan could hear that he was crying I love you. I love you too. Tell Lizzie that I love her. I'll get out and I'll come and see you. When the pulley system was finished, ah, <laughs> it's so, it's so uh, sad. <laughs> like that's why I had to take out like a lot. That's as much as I could leave in there. Like it's already affecting me and it's, that's not even, that's like 5% of what was in the original article. Ooh. Now, when the pulley system was finished, it was 4 p.m. on November 25th. John had been trapped for 19 hours, mm. uh, but the rescuers finally had the power to pull him out. The rope was strung through nearly 15 tandem pulleys drilled into the wall of the cave. Closest to John was a rope that went through a natural arch in the cave wall just above the crack where he was trapped. So Ryan tried to ready John for what was about to happen, and he said, OK, John, I need your help. I need you to make sure that you are pushing with your hands. In the pit, so there's the pit at the main entrance, eight people were working as one and John's body started to be lifted out of the crevice. So with each tug, he moved a little bit more. Then his his feet hit the low ceiling and he screamed. So Ryan yelled for the teams to to lower him a little bit, just give him a rest. And then when they, uh, yeah, lifted John up for the third time, um, Ryan stuck his head in the crack to give John his first glimpse of another person in over 19 hours. John, look up at me, Ryan said. How are you doing? His face was muddy and his eyes were red from crying, but he wasn't bleeding and his eyes were uh, bright, vibrant brown, so he looked okay. Okay. John replied, it sucks. I'm upside down. I can't believe I'm upside down. Uh, And then he smiled and said, my legs are killing me. Um, They let him down to rest again. And after about 20 minutes, Ryan raised his voice um, and yelled, haul. So the rope moved and John inched upwards. Ryan began to hope against the sheer impossibility of all uh, John might get out. 
And then Ryan's world exploded in a blast of pain. He screamed and blacked out. When he came to, blood was everywhere. So this is, this is Ryan has woken up after, the, you know, feeling this, this intense pain. Um, he felt like his jaw was broken and his eye was swelling. Under the pressure of John's body and the crew's pulling, the stone arch above John um, had shattered and the rope tied around it broke, sending a heavy metal carabiner straight into Ryan's face. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, so Ryan is trying to do everything he can and the rope snaps and unfortunately, yes, Ryan gets um, smashed in the face with a heavy carabiner, which you can only imagine uh, the sheer force that they would have hit him with being so close. Uh, now his first thought when Ryan came to is where's John? The trap man had slid back into the hole and he landed on his head again, but he, it didn't seem worse than before. So Ryan tried to speak reassuringly that, um, you know, uh, as well as he could, um, because his tongue was nearly sliced in half. Like he's in a bad way. Uh, so he he says to John, look, I'm bleeding. I've got to get out of here. Everything's okay. Someone else is going to come in and help you. Um, back in the pit, the eight people pulling the rope crashed to the ground when it went slack. It was like a slap in the face, said Susie Motola, uh, who she was the first rescuer, our Suze, yeah. and she was working on the hall line at this point. Now, Ryan's father, Dave, um, who was also working on the hall line, uh, you know, he was pretty worried when he saw Ryan come out of the tunnel and saw his face covered in blood. He, he thought that his son might have a concussion or may have even lost his eye, like his whole face was pretty fucked. Um, as the paramedics assessed Ryan, uh, and the extent of that damage, um, Ryan said to, okay, dad, you go down. So his dad, Dave and, and Ryan had created this rescue. So he's got experience. Dave went down and said, John, you're all right. And John responded, I'm going to die right here. I'm not going to get out. Am I? And then Dave said, we're going to, we're going to get you out. And he asked Ryan, uh, he, uh, John asked about Ryan again and again, like, could you, yeah, is he okay? Just, is he really yeah. hurt? Like John is just the most, oh, I can't. Um, he's just a beautiful person to care so much about someone else when he's in this predicament. Then John fell silent and his breathing slowed. While he waited for a drill to make a new pulley, Dave tried to wrap a rope around John's waist. He lowered himself into the wider end of the crack, but it was too tight um, to work the rope all the way around John. He asked John to suck in his stomach, but he didn't respond. And then it was Dave who got stuck. And it took him 15 minutes to get out of that crack. Uh, when he got the drill, Dave stood in the crack next to John and pointed up, drilling madly, struggling in the damp, humid conditions. He tried to put the pulley in and found the hole was too small. He drilled a second hole and pushed the pulley in. He was exhausted. At the top, Dave pulled Utah County Sheriff's Lieutenant Tom Hodgson aside. And he said, he's, he's dying. He's got a heartbeat, but he can't breathe. And, you know, someone has to try and get down there. So Hodgson, um, one of the unseen commanders, you know, he was focused on his earlier promise to, to get John out of there. Yeah. Um, so Dave spent, they sent another rescuer down there, Brandon Kowalis. Uh, he'd just arrived, so he was a bit more fresh than some of the other rescuers that had been there. And he bought a telecom so Emily could talk to John. So he went down there, spoke to John, and John didn't respond at this point. And um, Kowalis said that he was already unconscious and at that point, he didn't wake up. So at 11.56 p.m. on November 25th, a paramedic crawled into the cave and pronounced John dead. Emily couldn't understand uh, how they could know that he was dead because they hadn't found a pulse on his legs for hours. Um, and she was terrified of leaving. She didn't want to leave in case he, he wasn't dead. Mm. Uh, but John hadn't moved or spoken or breathed for hours. So it was, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, Koalas said that he had actually heard John dying which would just be horrendous. Uh, and Emily forced herself to get in the car with John's family and leave her husband behind. A soft-spoken Oof. man, Hodgson said, I know, it's such a heavy story. Oh, now, a soft-spoken man, um, Lieutenant Hodgson said he doesn't usually make a promise he can't keep, but unfortunately on November 26, he had to break that promise and he picked up the phone to tell the family that the teams were not able to get John's body out of the cave. Uh, at first they reacted with horror um, you know, what do you mean? You can't get him out. Yeah. But removing John after his death would be harder than it was when he was alive because he couldn't help them now. He can't move. He wouldn't have been able to breathe in. Uh, he couldn't push himself. He couldn't do anything. Um, so they agreed that they couldn't put the rescuers in any more danger and the cave would be his final resting place. The crews would seal it with concrete at its main entrance, both to give the family peace and also to prevent another 
injury. And that is the heavy tale of the Nutty Putty Cave and John Jones, who still uh, rests there, or hopefully he rests. I hope that he is at peace after what is one of the most harrowing events I've ever read about. Oh my goodness, Kate. Like, oh, I've never seen you so um, uh, visually react to a story oh. and you've had to not just research the story and read it over and over you've had to just retell it so yeah oh my goodness it was just so it's the always like you and I are so similar it's the the family aspect that gets you like yeah. it's that's what it is that's such a number one value for us and it's you know I'm sure it's the same for for a lot of people, but there's always people that you care about and then to hear that sort of, you know, them going through that, it is, it's harrowing. So that's why, otherwise I'd be just blubbering through the whole thing had I left the detail that is just, it's so exquisitely told by, by Lindsay Whitehurst. So if you do want to, you know, put yourself through that, if you want to hear more about the family and what, you know, they were going through, do read the Salt Lake Tribune article. But otherwise, if that was enough for you and that got you like it got me, <laughs> then you don't have to read it. <laughs> no, I think our imagination does enough of the work for us, doesn't it? Agreed. Like... And also the problem was I've just gotten back from like three days of just heavy partying and drinking and sports. I'm fragile enough. Why did I choose this? <laughs> Well, I think it's claustrophobia is such a it's such a shared and common and classic phobia of lots of people, and you know it. I'm going to say it hasn't turned me off caving. I think caving is such an amazing um, experience to go through for those that can do it and feel up to doing it. But that's such a ultimate story of. Um, it's just sadness, real, real sadness, oh. not just for John and John's family, but for all the rescuers. Because you have to remember all the stories that we ever go through and all the things that happen, even in modern times. It's it's not just the, the victims and the victims' families. It's also the people that do all the rescue part of it as well. Yeah. The trauma and the, and the experience that they go through is just... Next oh, you can't. Level. Yeah, it takes a, a special kind of human being to to do that, to put your life on the line. Like it's you know, for all industries, if you're putting your life on the line, if you're putting yourself in a position to do that for other, like it's just so unbelievable, so commendable. Shout out to anybody who's in any of the emergency services, any you know, nurses, doctors, rescuers. Holy frioli, like unbelievable. It's just yeah, it just takes an absolute special kind of human being to do that and it's uh yeah it's it's massive well kate congratulations i'm just gonna say it you are hitting it out of the park with your stories lately i am (laughs) fully gripped every single week you killed it last week with conscious in a coma and this week nutty putty cave is just it's quite the tale. Well I might, done. I'll, I'm gonna. Do you know what? For my own sake, my next story, which I'm, this is claustrophobia number one. I'm gonna hit you with a second claustrophobia episode in two weeks. However, I will do one of my usual sort of themes where I'll tell like a couple of smaller stories in within yeah. the one episode. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with that. I'm gonna try and find a couple of silly ones just to break it up a bit because we all <laughs> love to have a bit of the yeah the light side of it. And um, you know, I'll try not to make it too much of a an ongoing uh theme where I start to tear up during any of our episodes that's not really the aim of what we do so it's a nice little you know it shows we're human beings but at the same time I was like why did I do this to myself (laughs) (laughs) to do a bit of self-care tonight after the story and same with me in doing the candy man for the past exactly you know two weeks Next week, folks, I'm going to do one of my personal serious fears, but it's not uh, life-threatening. It's more of a, maybe something a little lighthearted. And I'm sure there's a few of you out there that probably share this phobia because it's relatively a newly discovered phobia or understood phobia, Kate. I don't want to give it away. No, don't give it away. Leave leave him hanging. But (laughs) I think my challenge next week is to not 
like dry heave or wrench as Excellent. I tell this story. So, um, yeah, tune in next week. Well done, Kate. Hope you're okay. Please take care yeah, of I'm yourself. Good. No, I'm good. <laughs> I am good to go. And I'm glad I got to share that story because, you know, wowee. What a tale. What a tale. All right. Thanks, folks. Tune in next week. Check out our Love socials. Love you so much. Look into our Patreon and look out for our Halloween special as well. Yes. I cannot wait. I'm going to get a drink. All right. Ciao. Adios, amigos. Bye. Love you. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.